so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. We've reached a tipping point regarding family in our culture. Our society is ravaged by destroyed marriages and dysfunctional families. At the ERLC National Conference, Dennis Rainey said this is an incredible opportunity for Christian marriages and families. We hope this message strengthens you to be a faithful witness to those you live among. Well, it's a privilege to be with you at this historic gathering. This is the right stuff, and i got to thank you for being so grateful. A number of you have come up and expressed gratitude for our ministry, and I have to say thank you back in return. Dr. Carl Zimmerman, Harvard professor, sociologist, researcher, and author of the excellent book, The Family and Civilization, spent years researching what took place in the great empires of history. He studied what happened as they rose in power, then began to decline, finally disintegrating and falling apart. His research was unique because he studied what took place in the family as the empire rose to power and declined. He found there were three phases, the last of which was described by more than a a dozen descriptors of attitudes and behaviors that surrounded the family and came from the family. I'll share with you eight of those factors. Number one, an increase in causeless divorce. In 1960, America had no no no-fault divorce laws. Today, all 50 states possess it. Secondly, marriage loses its sacredness and the meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Third, Pseudo-intellectuals theorize in order to save marriage that it must be redefined. Fourth, women lose their inclination for childbearing and child-rearing, resulting in what he called population decay. Fifth, adultery is celebrated in the culture. Parenthood becomes increasingly difficult for those who try to raise children. Seventh, there is a rise, a rapid rise and spread of juvenile delinquency. And finally, and remember, I am quoting him, number eight, there was the common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversions. Zimmerman offered his chilling conclusion, this generally marks the final stage of societal disintegration. If I told you Zimmerman's book was released this past year, you'd probably accuse him of stealing headlines and using fear to sell books. 
his book wasn't written last year. It was written in 1947. Baby boomers were about to enter a golden era in America. But we are no longer in the golden era. We all feel it. We all experience it. Our country is in serious trouble because its families are in trouble. Its families have traded their moral and spiritual backbones for the wishbone of political correct thinking and compromise. We have reached what Malcolm Gladwell described in his book as the tipping point. He writes, when the little things that are sticky all add up to make a big difference, we have finally reached the boiling point. There is a prevailing mood of hopelessness among young and old alike today because of this tipping point. But I come to you this morning not wringing my hands pessimistically or calling you to do the same, but instead suggesting that this moral and spiritual tipping point represents an unprecedented opportunity for the church and followers of Jesus Christ. Why don't we begin to pray and ask God how we can leverage the moral and spiritual needs of our nation to declare the gospel and start another sticking point. People's lives who have been transformed by the infectious love of Christ, their sins forgiven. There was a tipping point, many of them in the New Testament. Perhaps you remember the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. She met him at the well, not because she came to meet the Messiah, but to get a drink of water. And in the process of getting a drink of water, she found out she had a real need for the living water. As a result, her life changed so dramatically that she became sticky. She went back to her town and brought the entire town out to meet Jesus. And John 4.39 records many Samaritans in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. For millions of Americans... The unmet thirst for a good marriage, a solid family, represents a need we must address as followers of Christ. In order to take advantage of this tipping point, I would like to suggest three ways that the church can do this. Number one, I believe we need a rally cry of a family reformation. Just as the Reformers brought about a return to Scripture in the first Reformation, the church must reform our our families according to the Creator's design and blueprints, calling them to repent and calling them to be obedient. Ladies and gentlemen, this book begins with a marriage. It ends with marriage. From Genesis to Revelation, It's about how imperfect people experienced the grace of God, how they built a marriage and a family. The family is a harbor in the storm, a place to go home to. It's where the love of God and the fear of God are first taught and caught. It's the most powerful institution in all of our earthly existence. And it's a place, listen carefully, it's a place where God can show up and show off. 
If we are to restore, restore the soul of our nation, we must do it by returning to the truth of this book, one home at a time. To do this, the church must reject the popular notion of being a wedding factory. Instead, it should set its sights and standards on unashamedly becoming the biblically-based marriage and family equipping center in their community. Your cities are crying out for it. The people that you rub shoulders with in the marketplace are desperate for hope and help. They need to think about your church providing that. When people in your community think about preparing for marriage, growing a strong marriage and family, finding help and hope, they need to think of the church. They need to think of your church. To do that, we have to preach, teach, and exalt the noble purposes of marriage and family. And we must create a culture of marriage in the church that elevates and celebrates marriage as God designed it. This will be good not only for those who are married, but for the singles who are losing hope that it can be done. A number of years ago, I married a couple in Houston, Texas. Both sets of grandparents were alive. Both sets of parents representing the bride and groom were alive. And I had them stand. One had been married, the grandparent had been, grandparents had been married for 58 years, another for 53 years. The parents had been married for 28 and 33 years. Almost 170 years of marriage was, was standing as they gave away a young man and a young woman. You know what the audience did? They applauded. There's an ovation. That was 25 years ago. What's happened since then? We have to preach, teach, and keep the most sacred pledge and promise two human beings, a man and a woman, ever make with one another, the marriage covenant. We have to challenge people in our churches to stop using the D word and instead use the C word. Don't ever threaten divorce in your marriage. If you have, repent. Ask your spouse to forgive you. Get down on one knee with a child. Look them in the eye and, and, and weep and say, that'll never happen again. I still remember as a young lad in 1954, an argument my mom and dad had. I shook out of fear that my parents might get a divorce. That was 1955. We must repent of our cavalier attitude about divorce while at the same time loving those who are divorced. The church has to be a place where all of us as broken people can gather as redeemed people. I also think we have to create fresh symbols of the marriage covenant. You know, you know what one of the most often found items in lost luggage is? A wedding ring. People going on business trips and packing their rings because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, or so they say. When my children were married, Barbara and I decided we want to do something to make a statement, so we hired a calligrapher to create 
a magnificent marriage covenant that was read aloud in the marriage ceremony. Both our, our, our son or our daughter that was getting married uh, signed it, and then their spouse signed it, and then they invited the congregation to come up and begin to sign it, and then sign it afterwards at the reception. I went over and stood by the, by the marriage covenant, and two comments were a reflection of where we are within the Christian community about the marriage covenant. One couple came up and said, man, they're really serious about this, aren't they? And another one came up and said, now look and see what they've gone and done. Ladies and gentlemen, those of us who possess the word of God are the guardians, the protectors, and the keepers of the marriage covenant. And if the church doesn't exalt the marriage covenant in the culture, who will? Will government? They're just going to make it easier to get a divorce. Stand strong. This is going to take courage. I love what Billy Graham said about courage. He said when, he said courage is contagious. When one man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. We have to stand strong. Number one, a family reformation. Number two, and I won't take as long on this one. We have to challenge husbands and wives to pray together. Is it okay for me to quote a Presbyterian preacher here? In our first months of marriage, I went to a friend, his name was Carl Wilson, Presbyterian preacher, and I asked him, what's the best piece of advice you can give me starting out my marriage? You know what he said? That's easy, Denny. He said, pray every day with Barbara. I had no idea how profound that would be. So I went home, started praying with Barbara. We chose to pray at the end of the day. And for a couple of months, we did that every night. And then one night, she was facing that wall. I was facing that one. And it wasn't what was most comfortable physically. There was something between us. And God came to me and said, you aren't, aren't, said aren't you going to pray with her tonight? And I said, uh-uh. I don't like her tonight, God. <laughs> he said, you, you, need to, you need to ask her to forgive you. And I said, but God, you know in this situation, she's 90% wrong. And God said, yeah, but your, your 10% caused her to be 90% wrong. <laughs> So I rolled over that night, tapped her on the shoulder, and I said, will you forgive me for being 10% wrong? No. I did not do that. I did that one night, and that night lasted for three days, okay? No, I rolled over and asked her to forgive me. You want to know what? When two stubborn, self-willed people like Barbara and I are, bow their necks before Almighty God, for 42 years, you know what happens? God shows up, and he shows off. He turns two depraved, what Bill Bright used to refer to as depraved termites, into objects of glory as we hang in there with each other. So my question to you is, do you pray with your spouse every day? If not, you ought to vow before God to do that before you leave here. First, a family reformation. Secondly, a reformation of prayer between husbands and wives in the church. Remember the slogan in the 50s, the family that prays together? What? Stays together. I don't think it's copyrighted. Why don't we steal it? And let's use it. Third, Enlist, equip, and empower couples to become missional. 
James Peterson, James Patterson, and Peter Kim in their fine book, The Day America Told the Truth, found out that Americans were so upset about the moral decay of the nation that 50% of all Americans would volunteer up to three weeks a year to help fix America. They are out there. People who want to make a difference. Last night, David Platt exhorted us, marriages were made for the glorious display and proclamation of the gospel. There's a couple here who proclaim the gospel, Scott and Sherry Jennings. Their marriage was dead, as in D-O-A, divorced. They repented. They met Christ. Their lives were redeemed, and they locked arms shoulder to shoulder with a a finish line before them. And now, three years later, they've impacted more than 2,500 other lives through hosting events and taking God's plan for marriage close to people who are also broken. They're out there. Why? Because we were made for a mission. We've got to start where Jesus left off. His words, his final words in Matthew, where he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The family is the original Great Commission Training Center. The Great Commission begins at home, but it's not intended to stay at home. The family is not designed by God to be a holy huddle, but to pierce the darkness. It's meant to go into the community and touch people in their neighborhood, their businesses, their schools with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be challenging singles and marrieds alike with what their part is in the Great Commission. We need to ask them, why are you here? What is your purpose as a single, as a couple? What do you pound the table about? What would you give your life to? Had the privilege of having dinner the other night with David Green, CEO and founder of Hobby Lobby. He made an interesting comment about ISIS. He said, you know why they're winning? Because they are more passionate than we are. They'll die for their cause. It's interesting, David Green is kind of living up to what he talked about. Because you know what the Green family's doing? They purchased a little piece of property two blocks south of the Smithsonian. And it's going to become the Bible Museum. 420,000 square feet, raising between 800 and 900 million dollars to make it a world-class exclamation point of how our nation was, was founded and based on the scriptures. There's a man, there's a family who are making a difference in the Great Commission. Couples need to be asked, what's your mission as a couple? What do you do together? Your marriage has to be built to outlast your kids. And to do that, there's nothing like running the race with the friend of your youth all the way to the finish line being stretched out, I think, on behalf of families. And there's plenty of work to be done in the church. Marriage preparation mentors, newly married mentors, 
new parent mentors, marriage in crisis mentors. This was not meant to be an inverted pyramid placing all the responsibility on the pastor. It was meant to deploy the family reformation army into the fields. When Jesus looked out and saw the people, what did he do? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he prayed. And he challenged the disciples. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth the labors into the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. They are out there. They are waiting for the call. Will you tap them on the shoulder? Will you unite them and call them up? I think it's the only hope for our nation to experience a spiritual revival is to call the church to become great commissional. Father, thank you for these men and women who've invested these days. Would you uh, light a fire under them? And more importantly, light a fire in the pews of the people they go to church with. That people would no longer be willing to do nothing. But they would roll up their sleeves and be courageous in addressing great opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our Savior's name we ask it. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. If you'd like more information about families, marriages, and parenting in this culture, check out our upcoming national conference at erlc.com backslash events. Use the code ERLC podcast for 20% off of the registration.